If you've ever watched or read Tolkien's book, The Two Towers, I think the most unforgettable scene is probably when the evil Saruman sends his army of hideous monsters against a small fortress called Helm's Deep. In that setting, the king of those who are defending the fortress says, So much death, what can men do against such reckless hate? And yet, despite the overwhelming odds, three friends remembered the words of their leader when he left and said, Look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day at dawn. Look to the east. As the battle progresses, all hope seems lost. The wall is breached, the fortress almost taken, the forces of good are weary and all but done. And then at the top of a steep hill, the sun rises, the light shines, reinforcements have arrived. They drive back the enemy forces and they destroy them. Victory is achieved. Our lives do not follow neatly the plot of a movie or a book where the heroes prevail and the countless enemies are cast down. And yet there are parallels. Peter, near his death, reminds his hearers of former truths so that they would stand firm. He knows that their faith will waver. When the mockers come and say, who can stand? When they ask, where is your God? The doubts of God's remnant will multiply. They will forget the truth that God keeps his promises. They will forget that God doesn't reckon time according to our finite schedules. In those moments, Peter calls his hearers then and us today to a seemingly impossible task. Look to Christ's coming and live holy until that day. Look to Christ's coming and live holy until that day. Before we can get to the task, however, there are truths that we need to call to mind. In the first verses here of chapter 3, Peter is urging them to remember the prophetic word about three things, salvation, judgment, and who God is. First of all, the prophetic word about salvation, verses 1 and 2. Peter is writing a second time to remind his hearers of truth. This is the second letter I'm writing, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's already said it. He's saying it again. He's stirring up their mind. He's reminding them. To what end? That they would remember. Verse 2. Peter wants them to remember the words of the prophets and the commandments of Jesus taught by the apostles. For example, the prophets taught the Messiah would come, so look for him. And the apostles taught the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus Christ, so believe in him to mature in faith and escape the slavery of sin. There were many other things that the prophets said. There were many other things that the apostles said, but that is a brief summary of perhaps what Peter had in mind when he said, I was stirring up for you to remember. Specifically, I think he has in mind this idea of the coming of the Messiah. First foretold by the prophets that he would come to suffer, and then also that he will come again to reign in victory. We need to recall these prophetic and apostolic words so that we look only to Jesus and constantly to Jesus as we follow him. Otherwise, we face his judgment. Acts 17 says that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by the man whom he's appointed, Jesus Christ, by the words of the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. And so we must remember not only the truths of salvation, but also the prophetic word about judgment. We see this in verses 3 through 7. Mockers will mock as they pursue their own lust. There are people who are going to come and they're going to say, Christianity is a crutch for the weak. They're going to say, where is your God? They're going to say any number of things. The specific thing Peter has in mind here, and the thing that I think Peter, 
our people today have often said in mockery of Jesus and what he said is, he said he's coming back, when's it going to happen? Been a long time, did he forget? What's going on? If the world was actually made by God, why is it the way that it is? Is it going to keep being this way? Is he going to do something about it? They mock because, verse 4, they assume a non-catastrophic view of the world. Everything always keeps happening the way that it's always happened and will continue to happen the way that it's always happened until the sun goes dark and the world decays into nothing. But has the world always been the way that it is? Have there been catastrophic events that point to the possibility of the catastrophic judgments described in the Bible. One that comes to mind that is probably even within memory for some here is when there was the volcanic eruption in Mount St. Helens in 1980. It formed things very similar to the Grand Canyon and very similar to some of these other structures that we see that people look at the world and they say, well, this must have taken millions of years for a little river wearing away to form these things. And we see it formed in a moment. And so if that is the case, then it is evidence, though we shouldn't need that evidence, we should take God at his word, it is evidence that when God said the world was destroyed by a flood, that it did in fact happen and it leaves behind markers like the Grand Canyon and like some of the other things that we encounter throughout our world. A worldview that says things always happen by long, slow, gradual processes only works if you never allow for the possibility of catastrophe, only works if you reject the idea of a God who can intervene and do the unexpected in the world that he's made. But the Bible makes it clear that God is a God who intervenes. God is a God who does an unexpected, the unexpected in the world that he's made. And he does so quite often for the purpose of calling people to repentance. It escapes their notice, it says, that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago. Was that unexpected? Nothing? The world. And then that world was reshaped, destroyed, reformed by a flood of waters in the days of Noah. They deny that as well. And because they deny that God spoke the world into existence according to his word and judged the world in the days of Noah according to his word, that when God gives a word that says he will, verse 7, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. If you deny the first two, you're going to deny that one as well. But that does not change the fact that God said, God spoke, and the world came into existence. God um, destroyed the world by the flood, as he warned in the days of Noah. And God is going to judge the world by fire in the coming days of judgment. Therefore, if God judged the world in Noah's day, catastrophe will come again, but through fire, not by water. And we remember that this is true, or we see that this is true, when we remember the prophetic word about who God is. If God were a God who was fickle, 
if God were a God who didn't keep his promises, if God were a God who's untrustworthy, we would have no reason to expect that this third judgment follows from the first two examples of God's word leading to these remarkable unexpected events. But because God is who he is, we can have confidence that these things will also happen. What is the word about who God is? Well, first of all, verse 8, God doesn't reckon time like we do. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. That doesn't mean that God has no concept of time, but Peter is, I think, pointing out the fact that God does not operate in time or is not bound by time the way that we are. You and I are on a path that can only move in a linear way through time, right? We start at this point and we move forward and then we're right here. We can't go backwards, right? Um, there are various... Uh, science fiction books and movies that have explored the possibility of being able to jump through time either willingly or unwillingly. And those things are intriguing to us because we feel like sometimes we are trapped by the fact that we're only on this forward path through time. Right? So, you know, the, the simplistic version of this would be, um, you know, a question, a game, for example. If you could be exactly as you are and have a million dollars or know all that you know and go back to when you were five and then go back through life again, what would you do? Right? But here's the reality. If you, know, if you knew then what you know now, the course of your life would change. Right? Aside from thought experiments like that, here's the point. We can't do it, so for us to conceive of a being who is not limited in that way, who sees 3,000 years ago and 10,000 years in the future and comprehends them both in the same moment, that's hard for us to understand. The reason that Peter says that, though, is for this reason. What seems quick or slow to us when our lifespans are 60, 80, 100 years, even in ancient times when they were maybe approached 1,000 years, what seems quick to us, what seems long to us, is completely different from a, the perspective of an eternal God. The one who is causing these things to happen in a certain way, the one who is perceiving all of them happening and having happened all in the same moment. So if we try to put God into our box and say, God, you are slow about doing what you said you would do because we think that he views the world the way that we do, Peter says you can't put God into that box. Here's the more immediate and relevant point, though. God's patience is an opportunity for salvation, not a sign of weakness or forgetfulness. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Think about what this verse is saying. Some background information. Not all will ultimately be saved. Revelation 22 says this. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, which is probably a reference to illicit sexual practices, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood or lying. So the fact that Revelation says there is a group of those outside and excluded from God's presence in this city that is the equivalent of heaven, the fact that God says there are people who are excluded means that not every last human being who has existed will ultimately be saved. Peter is not here saying universalism. It does matter whether you come to believe in Jesus during this lifetime because there is no second chance in purgatory or in some distant future moment. So Peter cannot be saying that when he says, not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance, that God is going to save every last being who has ever existed. And yet, to counter the... Uh, consequence of trying to limit that too much, also in Revelation, we see God will save a multitude of people from every time and place. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And so, while not everyone will end up in God's presence for eternity in love and serve and acceptance and all those things of Him, there is not going to be this vast group of people that dies and is condemned forever and only a handful over here in God's presence. We don't know the exact ratio. Sometimes we look at a thing like the verse that says, that the, uh, there is a straight and narrow path and it's hard and few find it and there's a broad way that leads to destruction and we, I think, in our mind get this idea, well, like 90 or 95% of people are going to die and be condemned and only a handful are going to make it into heaven and God's kind of happy with that because that's the best that he could do. I don't think that we should think of it in that way. There will be a vast multitude worshiping and praising God for all of eternity, and there will also be those who have rejected God and turned away from Him and face His wrath for all of eternity. Why does Peter say this in verse 9, though? That's the thing that I think we need to wrestle with. Aside from what the Bible teaches about who will be saved and how many and all that in the rest of Scripture, why does Peter say what he says here? Because it's really easy to take this verse in isolation and take it and run with it in a lot of different directions. Think about what he just got done saying in chapter 2. There are false prophets who will arise from among you. Peter's writing a letter to the churches from whom false prophets will arise and true people of God will begin to be pulled away by them. God not having come back yet is an opportunity for those future false prophets and present false prophets and those who are being led astray by their word to have time to repent before he comes back because once he comes back, there is no more time to repent. 
And so Peter is warning and saying, don't have this attitude that says he hasn't come back, he's forgotten or he can't do it. See in God's delay of the second coming of Christ an opportunity for you to repent so that if you are the one who's teaching false things or thinking about teaching false things or being led astray by false things, there is yet time for you to repent. Do it now while you have the opportunity. Begin by remembering the prophetic word. Salvation comes according to God's word. Judgment has come and will come according to God's word. The word is true because God has spoken it. Therefore, look to Christ's return and live holy until that day. Look to Christ's return and live holy until that day. Look, first of all, to the day of the Lord, the day of Christ's return. You cannot predict the moment of Jesus coming back. He says here, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. You won't have time to get ready then when the world is bathed in fire and all that is hidden will be revealed. Matthew 24 describes this, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one taken, one left, two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Which is an exact parallel to what Peter just said. There's, there was the day of the flood. It was a sign of God's judgment. There's going to be a day of fire. Here's the parallel to the flood, also a day of God's judgment. During the flood, people weren't ready. They didn't expect it. They were caught unaware by the judgment. They were swept away by it. In the final day, there will be people who are not ready, caught unaware, swept away in God's fiery judgment upon the earth. What will that day be like? It says the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. We could have a conversation about whether this is a recreation as in a destroying of the present world and then a new one put in its place or a reshaping and a restoration of the one that's here. I lean toward the second, but the point is the, is the same nonetheless. There is going to be a day in which all that exists presently will be swept away. All the works of man, all the things that they have tried to accomplish, all the sin and the wickedness and whatever else, God is going to purge the world by fire from its wickedness, from its pride, from all the things that are broken and, and wrong with it. That day is going to come suddenly. So what are we supposed to do about it? Peter says, live holy until that day. Since all earthly things will be destroyed, you and I need to be doing works that last. Verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? There's a plaque that used to hang in the hallway at my parents' house. I think they still have it somewhere. And it says something along the lines of, only what's done for Christ will last. It is really easy to think that our lives consist of the abundance of what we have. 
if you have your house decorated in a particular way, if you achieve some goal with your hobbies or personal improvement or career or some goal for your family of things that you hope your kids will accomplish or some whatever it is, you get to go on some trip that you want to go on, whatever it is, we can pin our hopes on saying if this thing or set of things happens, then my life has had meaning. Your memory book of photos is, if it's not destroyed by fire or flood or dust or bugs, eventually going to fall apart or be forgotten. I'm not saying don't go on trips. Spend time with your family in meaningful ways that have impact on them. I'm, that, I'm not, that's not bad. But if you pin your hopes on making memories, people have short memories. What do you remember about your great-great-grandparents? Probably not a whole lot. If you pin your hopes on what you accomplish at work, someone can come in and mismanage that company and run it into the ground, and within a few short years, this thing that someone built up falls apart. Or the world can change and the company that made typewriters suddenly has no purpose. The company that made carriages has no... Nobody's buying them anymore. That's not a reason to not work, but it is a reason to not set our hopes on the things we do in our career as being the lasting impact we have on the world. What about the things that seem at first glance to be more meaningful, like the time that we spend with family? That's important, but only to the extent that it's geared toward what God wants to accomplish in our families being the goal that we're striving for. I've known people who said, hey, I didn't have a great sports career, so my kid's going to be the next LeBron James. And they just push and push and push, and their kid plays basketball all the time and practices all the time. People do that with music. People do that with academics. People do that with whatever, woodworking skills, whatever it is. People will push and push and push. They're like, if I can get this dream fulfilled through my kids, maybe it didn't happen for me, but it'll happen for them. Again, it's not necessarily bad to be pushing your kids to have opportunities that you didn't have, but at the same time, even if all that you hope is accomplished, it will fade away. If every last thing that we live for is something that is on the earth at the moment when God burns the world and purifies it, what is left? Nothing. But things done for Christ will last. He says, what sort of people should you be in holy conduct and godliness? If I live in a way that points someone near me to Jesus so that that person is in God's presence for eternity instead of condemned in fire for all of eternity, that matters. If I have an opportunity to talk to a fellow believer who is losing hope, that they can overcome some sort of particularly enslaving sin that God does and, and will help their marriage 
to succeed that they can take that step to tell someone about Jesus if they've never done that to that point in their lives, if we can have that sort of impact on the people around us, that's something worth doing. That's something that lasts. If we always in the back of our mind have this question, when the world is burned up, what remains of what I'm doing in this moment? It will dramatically reshape the way that we spend our time. It will not necessarily mean that we never do... It doesn't mean that we stop doing everything that we're presently doing. You still have to fix your sink or your toilet. You still have to replace appliances. You still have to go to work and earn money to support your family or whatever else. Those things still have to happen. But in the moments when we have a choice, which is far more than we realize, one of your kids says, hey, come see this thing. And we're like, no, I would rather read this book or watch this YouTube video or keep working on this project that's not really an essential, but I just really enjoy it. You're going to take the time to go do that thing and build that relationship. So in the moments when they really need your help and counsel and advice, you can have a serious spiritual conversation because you've been building the relationship all along the way. When you're at work and you have that opportunity to witness to someone, you're like, well, but I really would rather just go eat my lunch in peace. You're going to take that opportunity to witness to that person because that may be the one moment in the entire time that you're at your job that you have the opportunity to tell that person about Jesus. And you're not going to remember 10 days from now what you ate for lunch. Well, some of the guys will, most of the ladies won't. It's not important, right? Even if you do, it does not matter. It doesn't matter if you don't get any lunch at all if you have the opportunity to tell that person about Jesus. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Are you and I asking ourselves, will this matter when God purges the world with fire? This thing I'm doing right now. And if the answer most of the time is no, we need to be doing different things. But that's not going to happen unless we are looking to the coming of Jesus. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What hastens the coming of the day of God? Two things. Telling people about Jesus because that day will not come until every last person God intends to be saved has heard the gospel and responded in faith. What's the other thing immediately in this passage that, point, that he's pointing to and saying is a, a, a delay in the return of Jesus? There are people who need to repent who haven't repented. So how do you and I hasten the coming of the day of God? If we are repenting and calling people around us to repent, that speeds up the return of Jesus. Not in a, are we actually changing God's mind, but in a, if that's what God is waiting for, and this passage indicates that it is, what is it that hastens his return if that repentance happens? Now, you and I can't immediately bring about repentance in someone else, or for that matter, in ourselves. What sorts of things does God use to bring about repentance? The work of His Spirit, the proclamation of His Word, 
a whole lot of prayer. So how can you and I hasten the return of the day of God? Examining our hearts, being aware of what's going on in the lives of people around us, praying fervently, meditating regularly on what God has said. All of these sorts of things put us in a position so that we are regularly willing to repent, so that we are regularly calling people around us to repent, so that Jesus will come back, fulfill his promise, once all those that he means to come to repentance have come to repentance. Sometimes I think because we believe that God is sovereignly unfolding his plan in the world, we get too much on the side of, well, he's just going to do it, so he doesn't need me to do anything. But Peter says, this will happen faster if the things that are delaying it get taken out of the way. Again, it's a matter of perspective, right? It's not as though God has changed his mind. Who knew when he was going to do it all along? But from our perspective, it will happen faster when we are repenting and calling those around us to repentance. What's the motivation for this? Verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed, reshaped, disclosed. There's some argument about the specific meaning of that word. It's not used entirely frequently in the Bible. Verse 12, because of which the the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements melt with intense heat. Because that's going to happen, how are you living right now? And what are you doing that leads to that day coming faster so that you will be in God's presence and the earth will be restored and reshaped? What's the long-term goal? According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There would be a degree to which if we said the goal that we're striving for is the destruction of the world. That doesn't seem like a great goal to be striving for, right? But the ultimate thing that we are anticipating by the return of God is not so much the judgment that initiates at that moment, but what comes after. And what comes after? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, whether by destruction and creation of a new heaven and a new earth, or whether by restoration and reshaping and reforming the one that's already here, God is going to provide a place where he will dwell with his people that no longer is plagued by sin and death and corruption and all that's wrong with this world, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's righteousness with a people he's made righteous for all of eternity. That's the goal that we're looking forward to. So if you looked at the previous two things I said, you say, I don't really exci- I'm not excited about the idea of doing things that speed up God's judgment. Realize we're looking for what comes after the judgment. Our goal is that we are ready in that moment and the people around us are ready in that moment because that moment's going to happen whether we want it to or not. Repentance and obedience is going to hasten that moment as more and more people become in conformity to God and who He wants and all that sort of thing. That's going to speed up that moment. What comes after that moment is a glorious eternity that God has laid out for His people. Jesus makes the same point. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had known at what time the night of the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. 
For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think that he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his masters put in charge of his household to get them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are two outcomes for any one of us in that moment when Jesus returns. One is that we, by God's grace, through faith, are believing in Jesus and living in a way that's acceptable to him, not to earn his favor, but because he has shown his favor to us. That's option one. Option two is we're just going about our business blissfully unaware of the fact that the day of judgment is coming, not caring that it comes. And the fact that we don't care that it comes is a sign that either we dramatically need to repent and go back to the God, the first love that we had when we came to him in the beginning, or that we never knew him to begin with, either of which is a precarious and deadly place to be standing. Edwards described it this way. It's as though someone has a spider on a, a web hanging over a fire. All that has to happen is for that to break and fall into utter destruction. That's the precarious position in which we find ourselves if we're not sure where we stand before God or if we're living in a way that denies the God we claim, like Second Peter 2 talked about. If you forget the promise of His coming, we're not super likely to be living the way we ought to be over here ready for Him to come back. So my question for you is, have you forgotten the promise of His coming? Are you just going through life doing things that you see everybody around you doing? You get up, you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you look at your phone, you eat some food, you go to bed. Our lives should be more than following this endless pattern that has no meaning and no purpose. Now, you could be doing the exact same things, but doing them for God. You could get up in the morning. You could say, thank you, God, for this day that you've given to me. What do you want me to do for you today? You can go to your place of work and you can be diligent and you can do your best and take those opportunities to be a good testimony to your boss and your coworkers. Take those opportunities to tell them about Jesus as you have time to take conversations with them. Take time to take conversations with them, rather. You come home, you say, how does God want me to serve the people around me? And maybe you say, I live by myself. There's no people serve around me. It could be your neighbors. It could be people at church. It could be people that you meet out and about in your daily life. How can I serve the people around me? Instead of consuming our lives in self-focused activities that don't actually accomplish anything, and it's really easy to get sucked into these things, do the things that we do have a purpose? You're doing a hobby. Are you teaching someone around you a skill in the context of that hobby? Are you using it as an opportunity to meet people and tell them about Jesus? Or are you just doing it because it's fun and then you've burned up hundreds if not thousands of dollars on something that's only for you that has had no connection with anybody around you and no real purpose 
And when you're, when you're done, that classic car that you've restored or that collection of figurines that you've spent all your life trying to get gets thrown in the garbage or rusts away in a junkyard. Or instead, are we saying, all right, instead of spending all this time doing this thing, I can have this person over and we can do this thing together. Or, you know, maybe I only get to do my hobby three times a year or once a month. And that's okay, but I'm spending time with people. I'm having an impact on them for eternity. And then you go to bed and you're tired and maybe the next morning you wake up tired because there's been all these things that you've been doing and there's a time and a place for rest. Sometimes we have to say no to things, but... Sometimes we're tired because we've been busy doing the wrong things, not because we've been doing the right things. If you're staying up late binge-watching Netflix and then you're tired the next day because of that, that's not, how you, that's not a reason to be tired, right? That's just a wrong, selfish choice. We can go through our day almost the same way, but for entirely different motivations with an entirely different outcome if we keep in mind the fact that there's a day of judgment coming, are we ready to stand before God? But if we're, if we're over here, just sort of wandering through life, fumbling through life, unaware coming through life, we're going to, at the very best, waste our lives, and at the very worst, realize we have no true life with God at all. And that would be the worst thing of all. To come to the day of God's judgment, think you're over here, because you prayed a prayer or did whatever else a long time ago and find out that you're here and you never knew God at all and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you and you say, but I was really busy at church. I did these things that I thought were the right things. If you don't actually have a relationship with God, if you don't keep in mind Jesus coming, if you're not looking for that day for him to come, you can do lots of really outwardly good religious things and still end up condemned for all of eternity. It's not about do you ultimately pray or read your Bible or those sorts of things as a mere task to get done. It's about why you're doing those things. Are you doing them because you want to find out more about the God you're going to spend all of eternity with? You want to know him right now? You want to have a personal relationship with him right now? Or is it because if I don't do this, people at church are going to be like, hey, you didn't read your Bible this week. You're a terrible Christian. If that's your motivation, you don't love God. And there's been moments in my life when that's been my motivation. I memorized the entire book of James when I was in high school because I wanted people to look at me and say, look at what he did. That was a great job. I didn't do it because I wanted to know God better. I didn't do it because it would help me in my spiritual walk. I did it because I was proud and I wanted people to look at me. If you are serving God or doing Christian-y things because you want people to look at you, that's not for God, that's for you. Have you forgotten the promise of His coming? Mockers say, it'll never happen. False teachers and sinners say, oh, there'll be time to fix it later. Or I don't want to worry about it. Judgment will come on all who are not ready for the return of the King. If you know Jesus today, you'll be living a holy life, alert and sensible, looking to his return, not idle, but serving well until he appears, not despairing that he's forgotten about you because he will keep his promise, look to Christ's coming and live holy until that day. 
in your family, in your work, in your ministry to those around you. Live holy until Jesus comes back. He is coming whether we're ready or not. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, use your word to stir our hearts, your spirit to bring about true change in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.